Well, if you guys have been with us the last couple of weeks, we have been uh, working our way through the book of Acts and this series of messages that we're calling Awake. And uh, kind of the bottom line of what we've been talking about is we've been looking at what it is that Jesus is doing in this world. And we said that what Jesus is doing in this world is that he's building the kingdom of God, that that's his goal. That's his project. That's the dream of our Lord. That is his vision, and absolutely nothing less than that is his vision. And that's been a big part of our message, too. We've talked about the reality that the vision of Christ is not just the vision of a redeemed people. It's not just the vision of a group of people who have been forgiven and made new and made clean and made whole and, by the way, also made one. That's a really big vision, but the vision of Jesus is even bigger. The vision of Christ is of a redeemed everything. It's the vision of a new heaven, and it is the vision of a new earth that is, by the way, inhabited by this one new people that he has gone throughout all of the universe, if you will, throughout all of the world, choosing up. In other words, our Lord now has, in every age and era of man, been collecting up every different kind of man and woman and child and person, every race, every color, every language, every tribe, every tongue, every place. And he's gathering us all up under one umbrella, under one faith, under one Savior, one baptism, one spirit. Your faith in Christ, he makes us new. He makes us clean. He makes us whole and he makes us one. And then he tells us what to do. And what's that? Go out and build my kingdom. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ is building his kingdom today. It's what he's doing. That's the vision. And he's doing it through people who are awake to his spirit and to his vision. And so that's what we've been talking about. And this morning, as we kind of come back around that conversation of building the kingdom of God, we're going to have sort of a real honest conversation with Luke in the book of Acts. He's going to confront us with something that we don't talk a lot about. Not a lot of books on this. Not a lot of sermons on the radio, at least, that you hear on this. Not many preachers on television talking about this. We don't talk about this on Christmas Eve, generally speaking, or Easter. We don't come around and go, okay, everybody comes to church on Easter. Go invite all your friends to our Easter services. And here's what we're going to tell them. A, come to faith in Jesus. B, become a kingdom builder, because that's the mission. It's what he calls us to do. And C, kingdom building is really difficult. In fact, here's the deal. If you become a kingdom builder... You're going to face trials, you're going to face difficulties, you're going to face sufferings, and the reality is that at times your life is really going to stink. We don't lead with that, you know? We don't talk much about that. But Luke's not hiding that under a rock. He's bringing it forward and saying, look, here's the thing. Building the kingdom of God is not easy. It was not easy for Jesus, and it is not easy for the people of God who are being conformed to the image and to the pattern of Jesus. It's not easy. However, and here's the missing piece in that whole equation, okay? It's going to make you feel better. Building the kingdom of God isn't easy. It sometimes results in suffering, but here's the thing. It's a suffering that always ends in glory. Always. For that is the pattern of our Lord too. There is a suffering in the building of the kingdom of God, but it brings an eternal glory. And we're going to see that this morning as we look at the story of the conversion 
of a man named Saul who then goes on from this story and he becomes the Apostle Paul, the writer of half the New Testament, the guy who single-handedly takes the gospel to the ends of the earth. I mean, you know, like the most superior Christian probably, you know, that has ever lived. The guy is amazing, but he starts out as Saul and Saul is not a kingdom builder. Saul is a kingdom destroyer. Saul is not a guy who's all that interested in advancing the kingdom of God. He's interested in advancing, I think, his own kingdom and he's doing it at the expense of the kingdom of God. And that I think that Saul, in some sense, was a ladder climber. And he was climbing the ladder of the political and the religious hierarchy of the Jerusalem of his day. Saul has fashioned his whole life around, I think, that plan. See, he had his own goal, his own project, his own dream his own vision, and that was it. And so he sought his education at the feet of Gamaliel, who was like the most reputable rabbi of his day. He became himself a Pharisee, following in the footsteps of his dad, who was a Pharisee. He was possibly, we can't prove it, a member of the Sanhedrin, even at this age. This is an early age for Saul. And that's the governing body of the Jews. And he takes upon himself this mission of stamping out Christianity everywhere that he can find it, and I can't prove this, but I think that he did it, to further advance his name, to further build his career or his kingdom, and he's really passionate about it. And Luke leaves us with no question about that. He says this in verse 1, it says, but Saul, and then don't miss this, still what? Breathing. That is a vivid image, guys. Luke is a poet, and he is pulling images out that you're meant to think about. He says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. You see, and if you're not so familiar with the story that you just raced through it, you have to stop and go, what is that all about? I mean, what's breathing? What is breathing? Breathing represents life, doesn't it? As a father of three, I can tell you that for a fact. When your children are born, before you start counting fingers and toes, you're looking for breath, aren't you? And when the end of life comes, you stop breathing. Breathing is life. And Luke is grabbing up this image and he is telling you, this is this man's life. And I want you to remember that word life. He says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord because well, it's his life, went to the high priest. And he's talking there about the high priest in Jerusalem. Well, why would he go to the high priest in Jerusalem? Well, because he wants to round up all these believers and imprison them and torture them and do all kinds of horrific things to them, but he needs the authority to do it. And the high priest in Jerusalem had the authority to do it. The Roman government basically owned the world. They had conquered everybody for the most part in that day, but they allowed a certain measure of self-government for the various peoples that they had conquered. And one of the authorities that they delegated to the high priest is this idea that you can go out, he has the ability to go out, arrest people, imprison people, torture people, and so forth as he sees fit. So Saul goes to the high priest and says, give me that authority. He asks, it says, for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, which also speaks to his passion because Damascus isn't even within the traditional boundaries, geographically speaking, of Israel. It's northeast of it. That was true then. It's true now. So this guy is not content on merely stamping out Christianity within the geographical confines of the land of his people. No, he's, he's going to go to the ends of the earth to do it, which is ironic because he's the guy who ultimately goes to the ends of the earth spreading Christianity. This is going to be a pretty radical conversion. 
So it says, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, because that's his life, went to the high priest in Jerusalem and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, those are Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Okay, but then we read this. It says, and now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. So he's almost there. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And again, if you're not so familiar with the story that you're just kind of cruising through it, you've got to stop and think about that for a minute. This is not the only book that Luke has ever written. He also wrote the book of, what's his name? Go for it. Luke! Yeah, it's not tricky. It was not a trick question. And in all of his writings, this book and that, there are only two occasions where there is a sudden heavenly light. It's here and in the shepherd's field. He's calling you to think about these things. And what does the heavenly light announce the first time it appears? It announces the birth of Jesus, doesn't it? Luke is telling you very subtly, but very poignantly, that this is a birth that we're reading about. And it's not a physical birth, that's pretty clear. But it is a spiritual birth. This man, Saul, is being made new. He's being made clean. He's being made whole. And he's going to be made one with Christ and with his people, the people he's persecuting, the people he's building his kingdom at the expense of. And so it says, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, which again, you got to go, what's up with that? I mean, why not just Saul? It's not like he has to repeat it to get his attention. The whole voice from heaven and heavenly light thing is pretty big and tension-grabbing, don't you think? I mean, he doesn't need to repeat his names like Saul. Hey, you know, why does he say that? You see, that strikes his Jewish ears a little bit differently than it strikes our ears. That's a very significant statement. Saul, Saul, the repetition of one's name like that, spoke to one's affections for the person whose name you're repeating. Spoke to love. It's all over the Bible. You see it, for example, with Abraham. God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I want you to take your son. And then what does he say? Your only son. You hear how he repeats it? And then in case you miss it, he goes, the one whom you love, Isaac. The apple of your eye, the affection of your heart. I want you to take this boy and I want you to take him to the land of Moriah and I want you to walk him up a hill there and I want you to bind him and lay him on an altar that you with your own hands create and then I want you to take your knife, cut his throat and burn him up. So that's fun. And he takes him. And he builds the altar. He puts his son on it, and he raises the knife. And the Lord, and the angel of the Lord, cries out from the heavens, and what does he say? He says, Abraham, Abraham. Do you hear that? Don't lay a hand on the boy. For now I know that you love me, for you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. It's a statement of intimacy and of love and of affection. We see it with Moses out in the Midianite desert. He's out there, he's 80, he's got all his sheep. Probably it's at night, he sees a fire in a bush somewhere on a hill, you know, and it's not spreading, which is good news. So he goes over there, and we don't know why. Is it curiosity? Is it to put the fire out? Is it, 
What is it? We don't know. But he's drawn to the flame, if you will. And the flame is the consuming presence of God himself. And what does God say to Moses as he approaches? He says, Moses, Moses. He says it twice. Don't come any closer and take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy. We see it with David and Absalom. Absalom who betrayed his father. I mean, it's hard, I think, for us to even imagine the depth of betrayal. How great of an abomination that Absalom made of himself to his dad. He conspires against his father to steal the kingdom from his dad, who's the king. And he succeeds. He steals the kingdom from his dad. His dad flees with what people are still loyal to him for his life from the palace in Jerusalem and from Jerusalem itself. His son then moves into the palace and takes David's concubines, which he'd left behind to kind of take care of the palace, I guess. They're sort of like wives, sort of, but not, I guess, quite. And he takes them up on the roof of the palace, and in front of all of Israel, he sleeps with every single one of them. That's my boy. Can you imagine that? My goodness. Then he gathers up his army, and he chases down David, trying to kill his own dad. And he goes to battle against his father's army, and he loses. And how does he die, Absalom? He dies hanging in a tree, pierced in the side by a soldier's spear. They take his dead body down, and they put it in a pit, and they cover over, cover over the pit with rocks, which ought to sound real familiar, because it's the story of Christ in some sense, who became sin, Paul teaches us. He became sin for us. And he died on a tree bearing the curse of God. And he's pierced in the side by a soldier's spear, and he's put in a pit in a cave, which is covered by a stone. You follow? But what does David say? David finds out that his son is dead and his soldiers are thinking he's going to be pretty excited about it. What is the heart of the father toward the son who becomes sin? He says, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. Do you hear that? And then he says, would that I had died instead of you. It's substitutionary. See, Saul grew up knowing all this stuff. He's got it. There's not going to be a Hebraism that skips his notice. So all of a sudden, he's traveling down the road to Damascus. He is, you know, big time bent on wiping out Christianity. He is building his kingdom at the expense of the kingdom of God, and that is his life. He's breathing it, and he's stunned by this light that knocks him to the ground, and the voice cries out and says, Saul, Saul. So whoever it is loves him. But how can he love him? So you're meant to think about that too. I mean, you know, we've already kind of talked about this. Saul building his kingdom at the expense of the kingdom of God. But practically speaking, what does that look like? Well, it looks like letters from the high priest. It looks like rounding up the people of God, imprisoning the people of God, torturing the people of God by his own admission, killing the people of God. And you got to stop there, too, and be stunned by this statement, Saul, Saul. It's like, what? How do you love this guy? How does he love me? How does he love you? He loves us because the gospel isn't get all cleaned up and come to Jesus, and maybe he'll love you. Maybe. But you got some things to work on, so, you know, get with it. The gospel is you're a mess, and so am I. And so is Paul. And God so loved that he took our mess and he put it on this son who died on the cross, pierced in the side, buried in a pit, 
covered with a stone, but then rose from the dead. Little difference there between he and Absalom and everyone else who's ever lived. So anyway, so as he went on his way and he's traveling down this road and he, as he approaches Damascus, it says suddenly a light from heaven flashed. So a birth is going to be happening. It is being announced and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. And then it gets really confusing because then Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? See, that's bizarre if you're Saul. He's got to be on the ground thinking, man, this is getting weirder by the second. Why am I, you know, persecuting you? I've got names and addresses and social security number and photographs. And I mean, I can introduce you to the people I've persecuted. None of them have your voice and there's no heavenly light when I met them. I'm really sure it isn't you. Is the, I mean, he just, so he asked the only question that, you know, you would ask. He says, who are you, Lord? It could be translated, who are you, sir? He doesn't know. but he's going to find out. And it's going to present him with a pretty significant conflict of interest, a con conflict, really, a question, a choice between kingdoms. Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, don't run past that. Think about what he learned there. And then think about what all that he taught in all of his letters. I mean, what did he learn? Just a few things that he learned. He learned, first of all, these people that he's persecuting who did not keep the law of Moses as he did, as all the good Jewish people did, as all the people of God, the true people of God did. Those people who didn't keep the law of Moses that he's persecuting are actually the true people of the true Messiah. Uh-oh. But what does that mean? Well, obviously, then it means, first of all, that salvation is not by keeping the law, is it? It must be the free gift of grace. And isn't that what he teaches? Salvation is by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. You're like, what's the that? The grace or the faith? It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast, you see. Paul's the guy who tells us that. Where does he learn that? Right here on the Damascus Road. What else does it say? Well, I mean, if, if the true people of God are not the law-keeping people of God, then maybe the gospel, this gospel of free grace, is available to anyone. I mean, Jew and non-Jew, and he becomes the the uh, author of the uh, gospel to the Gentiles. He learns also that since persecuting the people of Jesus also at the same time as apparently persecuting Jesus, why are you persecuting me? That there must be some kind of an intimate connection between Jesus and his people, right? Something on the order perhaps of a body to a head. See, his teachings are coming out of this experience. He says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting, which means also, parenthetically, that when you suffer, you don't suffer alone, ever, if you're a believer in Jesus. And that's pretty valuable. But what about the kingdom? What does he learn in this moment about the kingdom? What he learns is that he's been building the wrong kingdom, that that kingdom that he's been pursuing with his life, his education, his professional career, this great assignment that he's taken upon himself, etc., etc., well, it's not the right kingdom. It says, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He's being reborn and falling to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? 
And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then what does Jesus start doing? This is cool. This is what a king does, by the way. He starts telling him what to do. It's one of the things kings do. That's one of the things we fear about kings, isn't it? Because we're just not quite sure exactly what he's going to tell us to do. It's like, you know, it's like, no, we don't want a king. I think we want to take a vote on this. But what about a good king? What about a perfect king? What about a king who rules so as to give his own life away for the benefit, the eternal benefit of his own people? Do you have trouble bowing to him? Or should you? Maybe that's the better question. Jesus starts telling him what to do, like he's a king or something. He says, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you might want to consider doing. No. Okay. Rise and enter the city and you will be told what... I'd really appreciate it if you did. No. I'll put you on my Christmas card list if you do. No. I can't find anyone else to do and I'm really banking on you doing. No. No. He says, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. When the sovereign Lord of the universe speaks to his people, he doesn't make suggestions. Should we fear that? Or should we embrace his greater wisdom? See, when you read through a story like that, don't rush past that. Stop and think about what the sovereign Lord of the universe has commanded you to do and figure out why you've got a problem with it. Because the problem's always with us. And what you're missing as a result. Jesus says, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. And then Luke says, and the men who were with who were with him or traveling with him stood speechless. Now, why does he give us? He's going to give us all these details. Why? Because he wants you to know that Saul's not losing his mind here on the road to Damascus. I mean, he's not the only one who experiences something supernatural on this road, okay? He doesn't get the heavenly light. We're pretty clear on that. Or they don't get the heavenly light. We're clear on that. But they do get the voice. At least they hear a voice. Whether they can make out what the voice is saying or not, I don't know. But they're having some kind of a supernatural, phenomenological event happening, just like Saul is. He's going to say to these guys, man, did that really happen? They're like, yeah, that was weird. You know, he's confirming this event. This is going to change this man's whole life. It says, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless. They're stunned. They're hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul then arose from the ground. And although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So now he's stricken blind. You're thinking, that's not good. No, it's really good. For that confirms this whole event too. And it sets up another confirming event here in a second. So they led him by the hand. That's kind of memorable. And they brought him into Damascus. And for three minutes, he was without sight. No, for three days... This man is blind, and it says, and he neither ate nor drank. And Luke tells us that there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, so now somebody else is kind of being brought into the equation, in addition addition to the guys on the road, and Jesus says, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, look, I've got something that I hope you'll consider doing. No, he says, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man named of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. This is all the grace of God to Saul. He is confirming over and over and over and over again, this really happened. 
This is real. This is real. Anyway, Ananias answers, Lord, I, I think that's probably a bad idea um, because just to fill you in, a oh, sovereign God who knows everything anyway, but I've heard from many men or many people about this man and much, how much evil that he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name, so I'm kind of getting the impression you want me to just walk in and what, turn myself into this guy? And the Lord said to Ananias, all right, I'll try to find somebody else. No. He said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. He will build my kingdom. But then he says this, and it's not popular. He says, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. You know, if you had an eraser, isn't that the part you'd just kind of... Now, why does Jesus say that? Because Jesus is out to get him. I mean, it's payback time now. You know, you've been doing this to my people, and now I'm going to finally... I'm going to just afflict you for the rest of your life. Ha, ha, ha. Did he not die for all of... Saul's sins, all of that, and bear the weight of the punishment of it on the cross. He's not punishing us. He's not punishing him. He's conforming him to the image of Christ. It's the pattern of Jesus, which parenthetically ends in glory. Not a bad way to wrap it up. The kingdom of God is not an easy thing to build, and it, it involves trials, and it involves difficulties, and it involves suffering, not all of the time, but more frequently than we'd like. And the reality is that sometimes the sufferings that we experience is so that the kingdom of God can be built not through us, but actually so that it can be built within us. It is God placing trials in our life and placing difficulties in our life and placing even at times suffering in our life. Why? So that he can, through these events, do battle against the sin and the idolatry of our heart. Calvin says the heart of man is an idol factory. And he's right. We're constantly producing them. God sometimes makes us to suffer that he might claim new territory in our hearts, that the kingdom of God might be advanced within us, okay? But he also at times causes us to go through trials and whatnot so that the kingdom of God can be advanced through us. It's not easy, this kingdom building thing. It says, but the Lord said to Ananias, go for this guy Saul is a chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and, and kings and, ch and the children of Israel, which is really great until then he says, for I will show him how much he must suffer. Do you hear that phrase? For the sake of my name. And Luke wants you to hear that phrase. And he wants you to be thinking about that other book that he read. And he wants you to clue into the fact that he tells us, Luke does, that Jesus says the same thing about himself. It's the pattern. It's conforming us to the image of Christ. In Luke 9, verse 22, Luke tells us that Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, the Son of Man, what? must 
suffer. There it is, same language. Must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and to be killed. Why? Because building the kingdom isn't easy. In fact, sometimes it's really difficult. But the missing part of the message is that it ends in glory and Jesus gives us that here, at least a glimpse of it, because he then goes on and says, and on the third day, be raised. There is suffering in this world as we seek to build the kingdom of God at times. But it ends in glory. And look what else Jesus says in the same statement. He stands before all of humanity. He makes a general statement. It's like, okay, here's the all-skate invite. You ready? Here we go. If anyone, it says, Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And what the language there is speaking of is make a decision. No more, you know, waffling. No more flirting with the kingdom of God and with Christ. No more one foot in and one foot out. No more riding both sides of the fence. Decide finally and definitively to be his. To live for him. If anyone would come after me, that's what he'll do. Let him, what do you have to do? Deny himself. Choose kingdoms. And take up his cross, the language of sacrifice, how often? Daily. And follow me, for whoever would save his life, whoever would live for himself and his own little kingdom, Jesus tells us, let me do, he's like, let me just tell you how it ends. You'll lose it. When? When you stop breathing. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, whoever lives for the building of my kingdom, says Christ, will save it. And if you think about it, practically speaking, that's exactly the way it works. If we live for ourselves and our kingdom and it's all about us, then when it's all over, when we stop breathing, what do we lose? Absolutely everything we've lived for, right? And what do we gain? Nothing. But if it's the other way around, we realize that our lives are just a little breath within the context of all of eternity, and we have the privilege in this little breath to do something eternally significant with them by building the kingdom of God. If it's all about him, and it's about his kingdom and not mine, then when we stop breathing, what do we lose? Nothing. What do we gain? Everything we've lived for. Everything. Eternal glory. See, like so many of us, you know, Paul growing up had a goal. He had a project. He had a dream. He had a vision. And he was on track, man. I mean, he was a star, you know, meteoric. And he could have continued on that track. He could have said, thanks, no thanks. I'm going to go do this instead. And I think we ought to be honest and just say, look, his life would have been a little more comfortable. It would have been a little more easy, don't you think? He would have had a great career. He probably would have, you know, had a great amount of money. He would have had a family, which he never had. He didn't. He forwent all of that. It would have been a bit easier for him, but then he would have died, and what would he have lost? Everything, and he would have gained nothing. But instead, he chose to deny himself, to make the decision, and to take up his cross daily, and to follow Christ, 
and to build his kingdom. And at times it was easy, and at times it was hard, and at times it was joyful, and at times it was sorrowful, and all of those kinds of things. It certainly was not easy, I think we can say that. It involved suffering for Paul, and it's as it does for all of us to some degree. But it ends in glory, and here's the deal. Paul knew that. It's what was pulling him through some of these difficult times. He tells us as much. In Romans 8, verse 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time now, I mean, what did this guy go through? Because if you have any inkling, it's pretty significant. I, I mean, I, I wrote a short list. Beatings, riots, imprisonments, sleepless nights, hunger, shipwrecks, times three. Betrayals, scourgings, that had to be fun. He was actually stoned with rocks once and left for dead. Ultimately, he was beheaded, beheaded but in any event he, he went through all of this stuff for the building of Christ's kingdom he speaks of them as though they're nothing is kind of what I want you to see he says for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing he says like eh, not even worth mentioning they're not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us when when Christ returns and brings his kingdom that we're called to build now in all of its fullness he's saying that glory that will be ours is so great, it's not even worth talking about this other stuff. It's quite a perspective. So anyway, Jesus tells Ananias to go to Paul, and then Luke tells us, so Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying hands on him, on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, this is a guy who had come to town to what? Take him prisoner, to maybe kill him? And not just him, but his family, his friends. Do you see the transformative power of the gospel? It's stunning. He says, brother Paul. Enemies have become brothers is the idea. The Lord Jesus, who really did, by the way, appear to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately it says something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight and then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. And then virtually single-handedly by the power of the Spirit, in joy and sorrow, in triumph and tragedy, in victory and defeat, in comfort and suffering, this guy went out and turned the world upside down for Christ. And we are here today as a testament to the effectiveness of his ministry. There's no question. Building the kingdom of God is not easy, but it always ends in glory for those who, like Paul, wake up to the Holy Spirit and set aside their plans and take up the kingdom-building vision of Jesus. Okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you for your glory is great. And I pray that this morning you would give us the eyes to see your glory, to behold Jesus, to realize the breath that this life is, and to feel the weight of eternity. Father, I pray that you would give us the faith to apprehend the privilege that you lay before us in the building of your kingdom, the mission that is eternally significant, and God, I pray that you give us the courage to find our thing, that thing that you've made us to do in the season of our lives for the building of your kingdom and enjoy to do it.
Help us to see the difficult things of life as opportunities that you have given by which you're building your kingdom in us. And help us to keep our eye on the eternal glory that will be ours when the kingdom comes in all of its fullness. We pray these things for your glory and in your name. Amen.